Welcome to the third podcast from the SGO Education Working Group on Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS, Pathways. Today's podcast delves into the sometimes challenging area of perioperative prevention of venous thromboembolism. Almost all surgery carries some risk of bleeding, and our gynecologic cancer patients typically also carry an increased risk of clotting. The format for this podcast includes two conversations centering around medical and surgical management of anticoagulation in our typical and more atypical high-risk patients. Our special guests will include Dr. Robert McBain, a cardiologist specializing in vascular medicine at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Emma Barber, a gynecologic oncologist at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. Interviewing Dr. McBain is Dr. Amanika Kumar. Well, I'm delighted to be here today with you, Rob. Um, Dr. McEvain is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He's a consultant in the vascular medicine division in the cardiovascular department. He has a joint appointment with hematology and practices both in the special coagulation diagnostic laboratory, as well as the coagulation clinic within the division of hematology. His clinical and research interests relate to the evaluation and treatment of patients with complex bleeding and thrombotic disorders and You know, uh, Rob, you and I have had lots of patients together and I've really relied on your expertise. So thank you so much for doing this. So it is such a pleasure to be here. I I love these interactions uh, that we have frequently at Mayo. And um, uh, these are always great questions and great conversations, whether they're at the door, uh, at the door of the patient or over the phone. It's, it's, It's fun for me. So I'm glad to be invited to do this. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we thought, you know, as a expert in vascular medicine, and we in GMI oncology just have so many complex patients with vascular medicine issues, we thought we would get, go through a case and perhaps get your perspective about your perioperative management of venothromboembolism. Consider a six-year-old woman with endometrial cancer who has a plan to undergo a standard surgical treatment for endometrial cancer, a robotic hysterectomy with bilateral subhingo-oophorectomy and lymph node assessment. But what's complicating this patient is a hereditary factor V Leiden mutation. She does have a history of multiple chronic and acute DVTs, and she's currently on rivaroxaban. So Let's talk about hereditary disorders because we, we see them. How, how common are they and which are the ones that we should really be concerned about? Yeah, that's a, it's a really great question. And I really love this disease of venous thromboembolism and its complexity. It makes it makes for a number of different twists and turns. And, uh, and it's always a disease where I can continue to learn and, uh, and hopefully become better. But whenever we see a patient who has a venous thrombotic event, either acutely or chronically, we ask the question, well, what's, what's the mechanism for this, uh, for this, uh, this uh, event? Why have they all of a sudden developed a thrombus? And whenever we see these individuals, the first thing we ask is, what are the, what are the obvious provoking factors? And so for this particular individual, and we're not given the time frame of her prior VT, but, uh, but certainly the big thing that stands out here is not the not the fact five Leiden, but rather her cancer. And that would, that would eclipse fact five Leiden as, as a risk factor. And so the first thing as I'm listening to the story that jumps out at me is her, is her underlying malignancy, which carries an odds ratio of between eight and 10 as a, for thrombotic events. But then you have the slight twist of the, of the heterozygous fact five Leiden. And, and then you're forced to ask, well, 
how how much of a how much of a deal is that? And factor five Latin is extremely common in in our country and across the world, um, particularly uh, individuals f- uh, from um, Scandinavian backgrounds. It's a fairly common and actually a fairly mild risk factor. So it would increase the odds of a VTE by about a, a magnitude of three, very similar to, uh, for example, oral contraception. But then when we're talking about uh, blood coagulation as a risk factor for venous thrombotic events, we typically would divide the known uh, heritable and acquired variables into two categories, either the weak ones, uh, where Factor V Leiden and the prothrombin gene uh, reside, or the uh, worrisome ones. And in the worrisome bucket are several. The first thing, uh, the first one, the, perhaps the one that's most scary to me is the acquired risk factor of antiphospholipid syndrome. And that's spooky because not only can it cause venous thromboembolic disease, but also it can, uh, of course, cause arterial events and destroy valves and ruin pregnancies. And, and it's just not a good, it's not a good acquired risk factor to have. But of the other heritable risk factors, which are give us pause, are protein C, protein S, and antithrombin deficiencies. Uh, these would be strong uh, and worrisome risk factors. Um, homozygous uh, factor five Leiden, homozygous prothrombin gene mutation, or combined heterozygous factor five Leiden and the prothrombin gene mutation. These would also give us pause. So whenever seeing these uh, coagulation factors, we divide them again into sort of strong, worrisome ones and weak, uh, not so worrisome ones. And factor five Leiden would fall in the latter category. Great. And um, so imagine that she's had multiple chronic DVTs in the past now, sort of distant past. She was diagnosed with this. She has a family history significant for a history of VTEs. And so she's been on prophylaxis, lifelong prophylaxis. Sure. She's and then you scan her, you check and you see that she's no acute DVTs. What, yeah. what do you do with her DOAC before surgery? Because I think as a surgeon, we always really worry about um, that balance between the bleeding risk and then the thrombotic risk now with her malignancy, especially. Yeah, this is a really good point and, and a wonderful question. Uh, and in fact, when I'm working in our thrombophilia clinic or even in the heme uh, coagulation clinic, this would perhaps be one of the most common questions that we're asked. How do we, how do you manage the perioperative uh, risk for patients who are on chronic anticoagulation? It's, it's relatively straightforward and uh, I think helps us to put this into a, into a uh, framework where we can easily digest it. And the first question is, or step one, is the patient appropriately on long-term uh, anticoagulation therapy? This is really important because we see a number of patients in our clinic and it's very easy that they don't need to be on a long-term anticoagulant. So we'd simply stop it and uh, get the patient to surgery. For this individual, she has cancer, she has uh, factor V Leiden, and she's had a history of multiple prior th- uh, thrombotic events. So she is appropriately on long-term anticoagulation therapies. Then step two is also, I think, a very helpful step. And that's the question, uh, can the procedure be safely performed without anticoagulation interruption? And now there's a growing number of uh, minor procedures that can be done without interrupting anticoagulation. And that list is, uh, is long and growing. And, uh, you know, it's a question of whether the procedure is going to be associated with a high bleeding risk. 
And so for our patient, she's anticipating a hysterectomy with oophorectomy. She has cancer. All of these things are going to place her at a high bleeding risk. And so the answer to this second step, can it be done safely without interrupting? Uh, the answer is a resounding no. She has to come off of anticoagulation. And then the third question is, okay, so knowing that she's on uh, anticoagulation appropriately and knowing that she has to come off for this uh, upcoming surgery, when should anticoagulation be stopped? And then the associated question, which we get often, even for patients who are on direct oral anticoagulants, is heparin bridging indicated? And the, the, the latter part of that question is very simple. If you're on a DOAC, uh, the two most common would be a Pixaban or, Zarel, or a Rivaroxaban, Zarelto. We do not use bridging therapy with low molecular heparin as we bring these individuals off. As we are considering then the periprocedural management for this individual, recall that she's on uh, Zarelto. It's really helpful upfront to ensure that her renal function is normal. And the reason why is that this is the principal route through which Xarelto is metabolized. And so we want to know, is the renal function normal? Or is she going to be metabolizing Xarelto normally? And then the other piece of information that I like to get with laboratory is uh, CBC. We want to know, is the hemoglobin okay? And more importantly, is the platelet count okay? So assuming that this patient has normal renal function, that their CBC is okay, including a normal uh, platelet count, we would anticipate that she would be metabolizing uh, Xarelto normally. And then in order to help us to define when to stop anticoagulants, there's a, I think, a somewhat helpful PAUSE trial. It's P-A-U-S-E. Now the PAUSE trial uh, was for atrial fibrillation, but it does give us some context to help us to determine when to stop anticoagulants for these individuals. In the PAUSE trial, if you were on Rivaroxaban and you were anticipating a high-risk bleeding procedure, they would stop two days beforehand. So the patient would be off a full 48 hours before undergoing surgery. Now, if you have a patient who has been off of 48 hours and you really want to know, is there any circulating drug, you can then get a Rivaroxaban level on the morning of surgery. And if you get a Rivaroxaban level, on the morning of surgery, we would like to see that l number less than 30 nanograms per ml to allow for a safe uh, major surgery. Now that's all the front door. We call that the front door. That's stopping anticoagulants, getting the patient to surgery. And that's useful, but not terribly complicated. The complicated part is the back door because we do not want to invoke any unnecessary bleeding at the back end of this, of this really important procedure. And so this is the part which is tricky. So first of all, we would prescribe aggressive DVT prophylaxis after surgery. The important point is this, do not start restart therapeutic anticoagulation for at least 48 hours after surgery. Allow plenty of time for hemostasis because again, we do not want to invoke, uh, invoke bleeding. And if at 48 hours, there's any evidence of oozing or that kind of thing, wait another 24 hours. Uh, the risk of periprocedural DVT, if you give the patient good DVT prophylaxis, is not so high that we need to jump on therapeutic anticoagulation. Great. That's so helpful. And I really appreciate you bringing up renal function. It's one of those things on rounds with my residents, especially with our patients that have ascites or changing renal function that, um, you know, as a fellow, I had a a somewhat catastrophe in that situation. And I, I always tell them to learn from my mistakes of really being sure they're metabolizing. So that's really helpful. So 
consider the same patient then who now has a uh, malignancy of factor five Leiden mutation, but she has, you scan her and she has an acute DVT and PE and she's stable, you know, she's doing okay, but she does need surgery soon. We feel that her cancer surgery is really important. Now what's the ideal treatment and what, what do you do with therapeutic dosing and what's the role of an IVC filter in these cases? Yeah, super great question. And, and as you know, there's, you know, the, the issue of balancing the urgency of surgery with balancing the uh, treatment of the VT, it's really complicated. And um, it, what I love about this uh, discussion is the multidisciplinary uh, input. I mean, we can't answer this question without you. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we uh, offer some uh, additional benefit to the equation as well. First question that I would have is we're talking about this particular patient. I would ask, is there any way that we can safely delay surgery for six to 12 weeks to get the treatment underway. And that would be a conversation. And, and the answer, it sounds like for this particular patient is no, we can't, we can't safely wait that long. We need to take this individual to the operating room. So then my second point or my second step for this type of management is to do a, a really thorough survey of the patient's uh, venous vasculature to define exactly where the thrombus is and how much is there. If, uh, if the patient is suffering a pulmonary embolism, I also get upper and lower extremity DVT uh, study with duplex ultrasound. You might say, why upper? Well, upper extremity VT, especially in cancer, is fairly common, especially if the individual has a portocatheter or a central venous catheter. Upper extremity, lower extremity, define the entire VT burden for the individual, and that's a really easy and simple, rapidly done step one. And then, of course, we also, like our, other pay, like our other scenario, we want to know what the CBC and creatinine is to ensure that we know what's going on with our drug metabolism. The second thing I would do is I would convert the patient to low molecular weight heparin, one milligram per kilogram twice daily of enoxaparin, and choose our surgical date. The last dose of enoxaparin will be given on the morning of the day prior to surgery. So if we're going to do surgery on Wednesday, the last dose will be Tuesday morning. And then if we're planning surgery and it's within that four-week interval between the time of diagnosis of the VT and our surgery, I would place a temporary IVC filter for this individual in order to get her safely through surgery. And then throughout the surgery, my preference would be to use uh, sequential compression devices if that's acceptable to our, our team. And then as soon as possible, post-operatively to start to DBT prophylaxis, not therapy, but prophylaxis. Again, just like our last scenario, I wouldn't start therapeutic anticoagulation for 48 hours after the surgery. Make sure that the that bleeding is acceptable and that there's no oozing. And then uh, what I really like if the patient's in the hospital is to start uh, IV unfractionated heparin, low intensity without a bolus, and then very gently get up to our therapeutic range uh, why low molecular, or sorry, why unfractionated heparin? Because we reverse it with protamine at a moment's notice and get that patient back to safe hemostasis if necessary. And then lastly, don't leave the IVC filter in place. You have a good long time to retrieve it. Uh, so what I like is I like, let's look into the future and ask, do we anticipate any further surgeries? At the very minimum, I would take it out three months later. And some of these new uh, optional filters, you can take out, out 12 months later. 
but uh, the point is don't forget about the filter. And secondly, don't, uh, don't be too premature to remove it. There's nothing worse than having to place a second filter uh, for the patient who needs to go back to the operating room. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, just to clarify, you know, I like the idea um, of using IV unfractionated heparin, but what about these patients who are basically same day discharge or one uh, night overnight? Yeah. How strongly would you feel about that, that you would keep them in the hospital for that transition versus using, you know, low Vinox prophylactic dosing and then transitioning back to therapeutic? Yeah, that's a super great question. And I don't know that there's any science to that, but the art, the art of it, I think uh, relates to the upfront uh, knowledge that you've gained by doing this, this uh, thrombus burden survey. And so, for example, <clears throat> say the patient has a pulmonary embolism, but they've got just a little calf DVT, right? And so that individual is not nearly as worrisome as the patient who's had a big PE and now has a big iliofemoral DVT as well. Uh, and so that, that upfront assessment of thrombus burden can be very useful in decision-making afterwards. And so that's how I, I use all that information. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Dr. McBain, thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been incredibly useful and I really appreciate your time and your expertise. It's so fun, Dr. Kumar. And I, again, I love these interchanges. This is what makes medicine fun. So uh, thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. Interviewing Dr. Barber is Dr. Elise Simons. Well, Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast uh, on perioperative management of venous thromboembolism. Dr. Barber is an assistant professor in the Division of GYN Oncology at Northwestern University. She's an incredibly accomplished health services researcher with a particular interest in surgical quality and perioperative care. Given this expertise, we are so fortunate to have you with us today to discuss the best practices and latest data surrounding the perioperative VT prophylaxis in patients undergoing surgery for gynecologic cancer. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here and talk about this area of perioperative uh, VTE prophylaxis. You know, we've had a lot of change and really good studies in human oncology done recently. Um, so I'm excited to sort of go over this. So I was hoping that we could consider a 70-year-old patient with a high-grade endometrial cancer who is planned to undergo a minimally invasive hysterectomy with sentinel lymph node mapping and biopsy. You know, when I think about perioperative VT prophylaxis, I tend to break it into, you know, kind of three timeframes, the preoperative, immediate postoperative, and then the extended postoperative timeframes. With regards to preoperative prophylaxis, I know there's some heterogeneity in practice in terms of mechanical, pharmacologic, or both. Can you speak to what the data supports in terms of the role for prophylaxis prior to surgery? Yeah, I think this is a great question um, and an area that, you know, probably as studies, you know, were done, people implemented things a little bit differently. So all of the initial studies that kind of looked at perioperative prophylaxis included perioperative pharmacologic prophylaxis, including both a preoperative and postoperative component. And I think people sort of thinking about bleeding risk and things like that kind of were really interested in maybe could we just drop the preoperative part and just do the postoperative? We're a little more comfortable with that, you know, sort of how does that right. go? And I think one of the most interesting studies or one of the studies that I think is the best that informs how I practice on this is actually this really large QI project out of MSK um, that they published looking at all, all types of cancer 
and it included a significant number of GYN cancer patients. And they basically instituted uniform guidelines for adding preoperative prophylaxis before there was a lot of heterogeneity and a lot of just postoperative only. Um, so they found that the DVTs went from 1.3 to 0.2% and the PEs went from one to 0.4%. So really dramatic reductions. And the only thing that they did was sort of um, institute this preoperative dose. So yeah, unless there's a clear contraindication, patients undergoing surgery for gynecologic cancers, both minimally invasive and open, should receive pharmacologic prophylaxis before surgery, in addition to the mechanical prophylaxis. Yeah. Um, You know, so this patient goes on to have an uncomplicated minimally invasive hysterectomy with sentinel lymph node biopsy. And there's fortunately no evidence of extrauterine disease on the intraoperative evaluation. She stays one night in the hospital and receives dual prophylaxis (laughs) with low molecular weight heparin and SCDs while in-house. I think this could be safely assumed to be the standard of care um, to give both pharmacologic prophylaxis while in-house. Is that correct? Yeah, Yeah. I would definitely say that. So now the patient's ready for discharge, and we're considering whether or not she should go home on extended pharmacologic prophylaxis. You know, obviously, because of the enduring risk of venous thromboembolism in the postoperative setting for our patients, the American College of Chest Physician guidelines do recommend extended duration prophylaxis for patients with cancer undergoing abdominal pelvic surgery. But as you know, the guidelines really don't distinguish between open and minimally invasive surgery. And to me, I think it remains a bit unclear whether extended duration prophylaxis is beneficial in the minimally invasive surgery population. And I know that this is an area that you have specifically discussed in the literature. And so I'm hoping you could talk about what things you consider uh, when you think about extended prophylaxis in these patients? Yeah, I think, I think this is like a fascinating area. I also think I'll mention the, you know, ASCO guidelines, which um, came out relatively recently that sort of even specifically go beyond the chest guidelines and say, you know, major surgery, laparoscopy or open should receive extended duration, although they sort of specify a minimum of like seven to 10, seven to 10 days. So, you know, not the full, like they're not saying full 28 for everybody. And so I think that even, you know, pushes that issue a little bit further. You know, the reason for those recommendations are basically these randomized trials that were done mostly in like colorectal surgery, esophageal surgery, you know, things that uh, are done laparoscopically, but sort of have a higher risk of VTE. And those trials compared mostly like one versus four weeks. Um, but found dramatic reductions in VTE. So like, you know, 10% to 1% kind of thing. Whether that's really, you know, we can really extrapolate that to our population. I think, you know, I have some questions about that. Um, I think, you know, specifically to to GYN cancers, there's a really large uh, Danish series that I like where they have, you know, thousands of patients, you know, with endometrial cancer, over 5,000 patients, and they didn't receive prophylaxis. Um, they were endometrial cancer patients undergoing minimally invasive uh, surgery, and they had a VTE rate of about a half percent. Mm. Um, that's consistent with like NISWIP data from this right. country that also is like between a half and one percent. Um, so the, the VT, and that's an endometrial cancer, you know, minimally invasive surgery. So I think that, you know, that suggests that we're not around 10%, right? Um, and right. so so maybe we don't have a lot to go down. There's a couple specific single institution retrospective series that look at comparing 
endometrial cancer patients that received extended duration prophylaxis versus those that didn't. Again, these are retrospective with all sure. the inherent biases um, that they did see, you know, non-significant, but sort of two and a half percent down to 0.5% kind of risk reductions, you know, so I think, I think that it's something that um, is probably worth considering for select patient populations, um, but it's not something that I do, you know, for all of my endometrial cancer patients or all of my minimally invasive GYN cancer patients even. Yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I, when you, you mentioned considering for some select patients, right. I mean, the things that come to mind for me, you know, are other, other predictors of VT, right. Obesity, other medical comorbidities, maybe limited mobility, you know, preoperatively, certainly a history of VTE, obviously. Yeah, I think you hit a lot of a lot of the important risk factors and things that have been consistently shown in studies with relatively high odds ratios. So I think the biggest thing in terms of, you know, magnitude of the odds ratio is like prior VTE patients are really high risk. um, And, you know, I would probably consider it in, in them or probably do it in them. Um, other things, lymph node dissection, about a twofold increased odds, some studies up to four, um, obesity, generally people use a BMI cutoff of greater than 40, um, you know, relative risk and odds ratios tend to hover around two. I don't think it's as strong a risk factor as we think it is compared to some of these other things. Um, but I think it's definitely worth considering other things that I sort of anecdotally consider, um, I do some robot, you know, cases for neoadjuvant or people who have active metastatic disease, like large lymph nodes that I'm debulking, um, or, or, you know, even uh, a minimally invasive debulking that I think I can get, you know, uh, appropriate oncologic resection, though patients with metastatic cancer, um, I think have a higher risk, you know, like disease outside the uterus, um, etc. So I tend to consider it for them. Um, I also think ovary patients on neoadjuvant chemotherapy, there's been a lot written about this, that they have increased risk of VTE. Um, And I've seen that in my practice as well. So that's another group that I consider it for. Like if I'm doing, you know, if they had a normalization of their C125 complete response and I'm doing their interval surgery um, minimally invasively, I do consider extended duration for those patients. Um, The last thing, this is a little less known, um, but I think about it sometimes for clear cell histologies. Um, those patients are found to have an increased risk of VTE. Um, so I kind of individualize it, uh, based on all those things, as well as the risk of bleeding that we talked about, but those are the populations that I really think about, you know, maybe may benefit from extended duration. So clearly there are patients who get minimally invasive surgery who probably do need extended prophylaxis. And, you know, the, the natural follow-up questions I think are, (laughs) how long you do it, right? We've talked about an abbreviated, potentially an abbreviated duration, maybe not the full 28 days, but also what do you use? Do you send them home on a low molecular weight heparin? Have you transitioned to using DOAC in this setting? Yeah. I mean, I think a little bit of pause that, that we might consider or be a little worried about a shorter duration of anticoagulation is some of these you know, colorectal cancer, esophageal cancer type studies where they looked at really one week versus four week. And they found the dramatic reductions when they did the four week and not the one week. So I think we have to be a little bit careful. Some of the retrospective series in GYN have looked at between seven and 30 and just put them all like sort of lumped together because people were doing all sorts of different things. I think 14 is super popular just from what you hear you know, that people are doing, but I don't know that there's great evidence for that duration. Um, So 
I think in the absence of that, I, I sort of go towards 28, like the original anoxican trials and all that, and just try to be more select, you know, I give it to people that I really think need it and go more for the, the longer duration. Cause I feel more comfortable with that. That's what's been studied. Um, yeah. and I'm a little worried about something as short as seven, just based on these other cancers. Right. Um, but I totally, you know, concede that it's, a, it's a very data-free zone and that's just kind of <laughs> my gist of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a hard question. Totally. Do you have them inject their low molecular weight heparin for 28 days or? Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think this is a question for, for both, um, you know, MIS and open, right? Sure. We have yeah. transitioned, you know, we have transitioned to a Pixaban here for the people we can, you know, get insurance coverage for. And obviously, you know, and I think, you know, that's based obviously on the, the large trial that was done comparing low molecular weight heparin to a Pixaban right. um, of around 400 patients, you know, that showed, um, powered for major bleeding event or bleeding events, um, and didn't really show, you know, statistically significant differences, although the apixaban almost looked better in terms of both VTE right. and, you know, non-major bleeding events. The, one of the things I find most fascinating about that trial is actually there's no difference in adherence. Yeah. I, I had the same, Yeah, <laughs> this, I was surprised as well, but yeah. Yeah. Which is like the whole reason I think we're, we're doing it in, in our practice because we think it should affect the adherence, yeah. but there was, it was like, you know, 85 and 84% or yeah. something like, you know, so I think we are incorporating that, um, for our patients that, you know, that we can get it covered for yeah. essentially. Um, and I think that would be reasonable for, for folks who are MIS. Um, we still give, you know, some amount of Lovenox due to insurance issues or other medical type issues. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I really, I wanted to just thank you so much for sharing your, uh, tremendous expertise in this area. And um, yeah, welcome back anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for the conversation. You know, these are interesting questions. I'm always wondering what should I do, you know, so it's fun to talk about and think about. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Thanks so much. Thanks. Contributing to this podcast were also Dr. Jeannie Chern, Dr. Andreas Ladani, Dr. Ronnie Natecki, and Dr. Stuart Winkler. Thanks to all of the working group members and discussants. We recognize that there are ongoing changes in guidelines and management strategies. For more dialogue, please join the SGO Connect Ed website, where discussion boards are ongoing in venous thromboembolism and other ERAS topics. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on-the-go podcasts, please email us at education at sgo.org. 